So last Sunday night, Harvard Heat Week, Harvard Heat Week kicked off in this historic meeting house with speeches by Bill McKibben, Reverend Lennox Yearwood, Bob Massey, Coretti Tiamalu, Kelsey Worth, and many others, calling upon the university to divest from fossil fuels. I welcomed the crowd and reminded them that friends don't let friends invest in fossil fuels. Then I led them in a new climate justice song, Leave It in the Ground, which we'll sing in just a few minutes to close our worship. Now, the Harvard Magazine reporter called it raucous, but I, I think she meant rousing. <laughs> Wednesday was faith day of Harvard Heat Week. Wednesday morning, Lama Willa Miller told us a Tibetan story about a Buddhist monk who went into retreat and cried the entire time. His worried attendant sought out a wise master. Is something wrong with the monk I'm serving? The attendant asked. What is your monk meditating upon? The master inquired. The attendant replied, the monk is meditating on compassion. When the master heard that, he bowed deeply three times towards the monk's retreat and said, here is a monk who sees the truth clearly. The truth seen clearly is hard to bear. Sometimes the best thing we can do is weep. Sometimes the only thing we can do is weep. I've heard it said that despair is a luxury of the privileged. If so, it's a luxury that ensnares many, frequently in the guise of cynicism, irony, or indifference. Emily Dickinson wrote of hope as the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. How fragile is that tiny bird? How vulnerable to the tempest? The climate news is mainly bad. We all know that. So I'll spare you what a, litur what a liturgist would call a litany of lament, and then an attorney would call a parade of horribles. We've heard it all and it's completely terrifying. Actually, there is some good news. Last year, while the global economy expanded by 3%, carbon dioxide emissions were flat, the first zero increase in CO2 without a recession in four decades. The explanation seems to lie in China's shift from coal to renewable energy sources like solar and wind. The cost of renewable energy, especially solar power, is dropping so swiftly that fossil fuels can no longer count on a price advantage in providing energy to developing countries. Pope Francis is speaking out forcefully on the Christian duty to care for creation, and the encyclical he's preparing is expected to throw the weight of the Catholic Church behind stopping climate change. 
The Heartland Institute, which just three years ago put up a billboard in Illinois comparing those who believe in global warming to Unabomber Ted Kaczynski, <laughs> now admits that the science of climate change is actually settled having lost its major corporate sponsors, ranging from Google and Facebook to British Petroleum and Northrop Grumman. The American Legislative Exchange Council, known as ALEC, now insists it does not deny global warming. So two weeks ago, I, I, I tweeted a link to a Washington Post report that climate change deniers are in retreat, quote unquote. Immediately I heard back from someone who was having none of it. But he wasn't a climate change denier. He was a climate change believer so discouraged he couldn't bear to hear good news. Oh, if only, he scoffed. Arguments will shift to aspects of the science that bear on degree of urgency. We'll still hear plenty of the more troglodyte stuff. So I checked his Twitter profile, and this gentleman describes himself as in, quote, a blind panic about climate change, unquote. It made me wonder if hopelessness might be a kind of addiction that feeds and survives on its own despair. Psychiatrists are beginning to use terms like climate trauma and climate depression to describe what they're observing in climate scientists, activists, and ordinary people troubled by the bleak forecasts of the future of the Earth. They identify a range of symptoms, anxiety, stress, insomnia, overwork, fear, hopelessness, irritability, anger. Psychiatrist Lisa Van Susteren recommends some remedies, physical and spiritual self-care, through balance and healthy living, exercise, for the endorphins and the boost to the immune system, time outdoors to reconnect with nature, remembering that you are not alone. But as Emily Dickinson understood, what we need most of all is hope. Hope, of course, is different from optimism. Optimism depends on prospects for a positive outcome. If things look good, we're optimistic. If not, pessimism reigns. Hope is made of sterner stuff. It abides in the heart. Hope, says educator David Henderson, accepts reality. It accepts the poverty of spirit that underlies all fear, instigates all tragedies, bureaucracy, and institutional inertia. But hope has a trump card, Henderson declares, the capacity of the human heart. When optimism gets ground up by reality, hope will go toe-to-toe -to -toe with reality because of a heart that simply refuses to quit. And there is no reality that can overcome the capacity of the human heart to withstand. And even to ask boldly, is that all you got? Is that the best you can do? My heart and the hearts of these people here with me are way bigger than that. Hope trusts 
in the inexhaustible power of our hearts to choose love over fear. So hope is not just a feeling. It's a muscle that can be trained and developed. In their inspiring book, Active Hope, Joanna Macy and Chris Johnston write, active hope is a practice like Tai Chi or gardening. It is something we do rather than have. It is a process we can apply to any situation that it involves three key steps. First, we take in a clear view of reality. Second, we identify what we hope for in terms of the direction we'd like things to move in or the values we'd like to see expressed. And third, we take steps to move ourselves or our situation in that direction. The guiding impetus, they write, is intention. Hope is the conviction that no matter how dire our circumstances, no matter how daunting the obstacles we face, there is something we can do if we can summon the courage and the creativity to do it. And in the doing, we will find solace, satisfaction, and even joy. This is where hope begins to resemble faith. Not faith necessarily in a supreme being or in a preordained outcome, but faith in ourselves, in the integrity of our effort, in what Buddhists call right action. And this is also where practice becomes strategy. The movements that persevere, writes climate activist and Unitarian Universalist Tim DeChristopher in the Harvard Divinity Bulletin, are those which find a form of hope, a reason to continue the struggle, even in those difficult times. A major reason why religious communities have played an important role in so many social movements is that in those moments of despair, when optimism is ridiculous, religious people base their hope on faith and continue the struggle. In those bleak moments, we continue to struggle for justice because that is what it means to be faithful to the people we love, to be faithful to the world we love, and to be faithful to a God who loves the world. Fourteen years ago, in Washington, D.C., I was arrested with other religious leaders in civil disobedience. The new administration of President George W. Bush was threatening to open the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. It was clear our government was planning to move us backwards, not forwards, in the struggle against catastrophic climate change. The very first campaign promise broken by the new president was his promise to regulate carbon as a pollutant. So on a glorious spring day, much like this one, under the banner of religious witness for the earth, a hundred of us gathered in worship outside the Department of Energy. Then the 22 of us who had resolved to risk arrest sat down, blocking the entrance. We prayed, we sang, and we were arrested. After about Twelve hours in jail, we were released on payment of a $50 fine. 
We received some media coverage, both nationally and in Alaska, home of the Arctic Refuge. And we know the administration took notice. My friend Margaret Bullitt Jonas, an Episcopal priest, later reflected on her experience. How did I miss it, she writes. After years of going to church, after years of celebrating the Eucharist, only now, as I kneel on pavement and face a phalanx of cops, do I understand so clearly that praising God can be an act of political resistance. I feel as defiant as a maple seedling that pushes up through the asphalt. It is God I love and God's green earth. I want to bear witness to that love even in the face of hatred and indifference, even if the cost is great. I never knew that stepping beyond the borders of what I find comfortable could make me so happy. That shifting from self-preservation to self-offering could awaken such joy. These days, Margaret has a very cool job with the world's coolest job title. She is Missioner for Creation Care of the Episcopal Diocese of Western Massachusetts. Margaret sees a healthy and healing response to the climate crisis in three aspects or places along the path of inner transformation, all springing from the heart. The first is an awakened heart. A person with an awakened heart, Margaret suggests, is someone whose heart is being touched again and again and again by a boundless love that seems to well up from nowhere. A person with an awakened heart is someone who is learning to see themselves and others and all creation with eyes of love. Next, inevitably, comes a broken heart. A healer's heart, Margaret believes, is willing to suffer, to feel pain. So that's the second aspect of a healer's heart. It's a wounded heart, a heart that is willingly pierced by grief. Paradoxically, surrendering to grief in the presence of divine love does not diminish us, but opens us to a new kind of empowerment and a completely new experience of hope. And finally, we may arrive at what Margaret calls a radiant heart, a heart that engages others, takes action, takes risks to make a difference in the world. We want our lives to bear witness in tangible ways, she declares, to the love that has set us free from the tyranny of suffering and death. This is what Christians call an experience of resurrection. We are filled with a divine spirit, a Holy Spirit, that sends us out as healers, as justice makers, as peacemakers. With an awakened heart, with a broken heart, with a radiant heart. We can turn the tide against the desecration of creation, against mass extinction, against the exploitation of the most vulnerable people on the planet. 
we can build the beloved community of love and justice. Whatever the odds and whatever the outcome, let us go forward with hope. There's a saying in the Hadith, the collection handed down through the centuries from the Prophet Muhammad, which Harvard Muslim chaplain Nuri Friedlander shared with us here in our meeting house last Wednesday evening. It's a saying closely paralleled in the Jewish tradition. It is said that if the last day comes upon you and the trumpet announcing the end of the world is sounding and in your hand is a seedling you are about to plant, plant it. We can never know when that moment may come. And so, may we always hold a seedling in our hand. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.